So anyway, it's good to be with you. Thank you for joining us on this first Sunday of the year. What a great time to be together. So as I said, we are going to do our Merry New Year service, a little bit of Christmas Eve mixed with a little bit of an encouragement for the new year that we have coming forward. So last week when I was preparing my Christmas Eve service, I kept having one question in my mind, and that question is, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? I mean, when you think about it, he could have been born in any city in the world. I mean, he could have been born in Grand Rapids. He could have been born in Moscow. He could have been any city of the world, but yet he was born in Bethlehem, and there is a strategic reason for it. But before I talk about why he was born in Bethlehem, I want to talk about earthquakes. See, one of the, 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 one of the memories I have of seminary, being living in Southern California for three years while I went to Fuller, was my very first earthquake that I experienced. I remember on January 17, 1994, at 4.30 in the morning, I woke up watching my Ikea bookshelf go back and forth on the wall. And I looked over at my desk and all my papers and my pencils was kind of shimming across my desk. Some of you that are my age or older, you remember those electronic football games that you'd plug in and the whole thing would vibrate? That's kind of what my desk looked like. And for the next 30 seconds, the longest 30 seconds ever existed in the world, it felt like there's just a wave going underneath the house that I lived in. And so me being the smart person, realizing I live in a probably a hundred year old house in Los Angeles County, I probably should get outside really quickly. And as I got outside and I listened to probably every single car alarm in Los Angeles going off and every dog barking, I realized that all the other seminarians that live in the house I lived in are really good sleepers because I was the only buddy outside, only person outside going, what just happened? So that was before cell phones and all that. So I had to go back and find my radio and find KTLA and figure out I just lived through my very first earthquake. It was quite a devastating earthquake. It measured at 6.7 on the Richter scale. And it's kind of one of those, the thing about an earthquake is it's never over after the earthquake's over. It just continues on. But what I learned about an earthquake is one of the biggest questions that people have after earthquake, you know, after kind of the dust settles and you you figure out all the damage that was done, everybody wants to know where is the epicenter of the earthquake? Everybody wants to know where did this earthquake originate at? It's some little thing that you want to figure out because if you know where the epicenter of the earthquake is, you know where the aftershocks are going to be the most intense. Because after an earthquake, for the next two weeks especially, up until probably the next hundred years, you will feel little earthquakes after the major earthquake. And so since that earthquake was the Northridge earthquake of 1994, there were some significant aftershocks after that earthquake that almost felt as severe as the earthquake. everybody wants to target where's the epicenter because if you know where the epicenter is you know where all the activity is happening and 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 seismologists will tell you that aftershocks can actually continue on for 10 20 up to 100 or so years after the earthquake and after a while they get a little smaller see one of the reasons why people are so curious where the epicenter of that earthquake is is because an earthquake is never a singular event It continues to happen over and over again, and people keep being drawn back to that epicenter so they can understand what's going on. 
And 2,000 years ago, on the night that Jesus was born, was very similar to an earthquake. It wasn't similar to an earthquake because of the devastation. It was, it, was, it was like an earthquake because it created this epicenter in the world that everybody was trying to figure out what went on and what happened at the birth of this baby. Because for 700 years prior, the people of Israel had been waiting for this king to be born. Some of you are familiar with the passage of Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, this familiar passage that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. And this scripture says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And the compassionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. For 700 years, the Israelites read that verse. Probably some of them read it every day thinking, when is this going to happen? And finally, it happens. That was an epicenter in the world when that happened because not only were the Israelites happy that that happened, but there was a group of wise men. You heard the story of the wise men. You know what? They went to seek Jesus. They went to find where was this boy born. And not only was the wise men, but the shepherds wanted to know where was this baby, including King Herod at the time, wanted to know where was this baby born. The entire world wanted to know where this baby was born because the birth of this baby actually shocked the entire world. So why Bethlehem? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem when he could have been born anywhere in the world? See, Bethlehem was strategic. It wasn't just a random thing that, whoop, that's where it happened. You look at the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem el you are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. See, Jesus to be born in Bethlehem was incredibly strategic. It was strategic for a variety of number of reasons, probably more reasons than I probably understand or probably could even pull from the Bible. But today I want to talk about two main reasons why I think Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the first reason is because of the name and the meaning of Bethlehem, but also I want to talk about one of the significant facts about Bethlehem. See, my goal is in this message that we would be encouraged. As we are stepping into a new year today, my goal is that we are encouraged with confidence, with hope, and with trust, knowing that God is with us as we enter into this new year. That we would leave here today, or you would turn off your computer today, excited for this new year, because you know that God is with you, and that God has a strategic and a wonderful plan for your life. That you will leave here with optimism and hope, not just saying, oh, it's another year, I hope it's a good one, but you would leave here with the confidence knowing God spoke to you and said, I have a plan for you. That's my goal. That the Holy Spirit would visit you as we're sitting here today or watching online. That you would have an encounter with God. 
that you would know that God is with you and that God is for you and God has a strategic plan for you today and for this year. Bethlehem was strategic. Your life is strategic. God has a plan and a purpose and a destiny. So why Bethlehem? First of all, I want to talk about the meaning of the name Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a unique word. Beth means house, and Lehem means bread. You put the two together, and Bethlehem means a house of bread. Now, in 2023, which is the first time I've said that, 2023, you're like, ah, nice little fact, means house of bread. But bread was an incredibly significant resource back in the Bible times. Bread was considered a staple of the ancient diet. Back 2,000 years ago, you had to have bread. You had to eat bread. Bread was a means of survival. Now back in in our day, you could go without eating bread the rest of your life and you'd be fine. There's plenty of substitutes, but you go back 2,000 years ago, you had to have bread. You cannot live without bread. And people in the Bible times knew that you had to have bread to survive. Bread was always considered a means of survival. And so all through the scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the bread is going to become a common illustration through the entire Bible that is going to be referring to the presence and the power of God. Bread wasn't just something that you ate, but it was an illustration of the presence and the power of God. So I want to talk about a few different ways how that was illustrated. One of the first ways, one of the first uses of bread that we saw in the Old Testament is when the Israelites got out of captivity in Egypt. You might remember in the book of Exodus, for 400 years, the Israelites were stuck in Egypt under the captivity of the Egyptians. And God one day decided it was time to get the Israelis out and to bring them into the freedom. But before they could get from Egypt into the promised land that God had for them, God had to teach them what was freedom. See, it's easy to think that freedom would be getting out of captivity, Or you think freedom is getting into the promised land. But freedom for the Israelites was not getting out of Egypt. It was not getting into the promised land. Freedom was always an intimate relationship with God. Freedom is not marked by your location, where you live, or what you have. Freedom is always measured by an intimate relationship that you have with God. So in order for the Israelites to have an intimate relationship with God, God's going to have to teach them How does that actually happen? So as the Israelites go from captivity into the promised land, God has one goal. He wants to teach the Israelites how to be totally dependent on him. See, freedom doesn't mean that every challenging circumstance in your life has to go away. Freedom doesn't mean that every single obstacle in your life has to go away. Freedom doesn't mean that you have to have the perfect marriage. Freedom doesn't mean that you have to have the perfect career. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean you have to have the perfect experience in your life. Freedom means whatever's blocking you from having an intimate relationship with God is removed. Freedom is when you experience total dependency on Jesus. If you are dependent on Jesus, you have found freedom and you are experiencing freedom. That is so contrary to the way that we think, especially in our Western culture. We are so inclined to think every bad thing has to be removed from my life, then I will experience freedom. 
Every obstacle has to be removed. Then I will have to be experiencing freedom. That's why it took the Israelites such a long 40 years to get from captivity to the promised land. It took them 40 years to re realize, ah, freedom is dependency on God. So how does God teach the Israelites dependency? He does it in a unique way. He does it by providing them bread. You might remember the story. The Israelites wandered through the wilderness. They had nothing to eat. So every night, manna fell from heaven. And every morning, the Israelites would go out, they'd collect the manna, and that they would have food for the day. God actually used bread to teach the Israelites in the wilderness how to depend on him. See, the main principle for the Israelites was, if you need it, God will provide it. Whatever you need, God's going to provide so even from the time of the exodus from Egypt, God taught them the significance and the importance of bread, that you cannot survive without bread, and you cannot survive without a God who will give you bread each and every day. And so later when you see in the Bible, when we go into the uh, Israelites, use the temple worship, bread in the temple became another illustration. You see in the temple that it was set up that there would actually be a basket of bread inside the temple, that every time you went in the temple, you remembered that God was a God that provided, that if you needed it, God would provide it and bread would become the picture of the substance of life. And also for the Israelites to celebrate God's provision, they would often give back to God. God would call the Israelites that when their crops would come in, they would give the first harvest, the first tenth of their harvest of their grain or their barley or whatever they are growing, they would give it back to God. The principle that God was showing back in that early time was God is going to give you so much abundance of bread and provision that you can give back to him because he always gives more than you would need. And then we turn the pages and we go to the New Testament and we see a third way that bread is going to illustrate God's provision. You see in John chapter 6 that Jesus is preaching to a very large crowd, probably of 15, 20,000 people, and Jesus says in John 6 verse 35 something incredibly powerful. He says to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, Jesus in this passage calls himself the bread of life. He essentially is saying to the crowd, you can't survive without me. See, in our culture, somebody says, I'm the bread of life. You're like, that means nothing. I'll eat a Pop-Tart. But in that culture, they knew when you said, I'm the bread of life, that meant you can't live without him. That was a powerful message, and it was a powerful time to Jesus to declare to the world that he's the bread of life because Jesus had just fed a crowd of over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. And he had leftovers. The day Jesus displayed to a crowd, I can feed a crowd with five loaves of bread and two fish, he said to the crowd, I have no limitations. There's nothing that can restrict me. There's nothing that can hold me back from supplying your needs. You might look at me and think, how are you going to supply my needs? You have five loaves of bread and two fish, and there's 5,000 people. What Jesus did in such a way that there's leftovers. That's the picture that Jesus wants us to see. When, he sees, when he, you see Jesus as the bread of life, you realize there's always more than enough 
And he declared that to that crowd on that powerful day. And that was a prophetic announcement to the world that this baby that is now a man can take care of every single one of your needs. The use of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, being born in Bethlehem was a powerful illustration that this baby was born in a strategic city that meant house of bread. But there's something else that's significant about Bethlehem. There's something besides the name. See, the Jewish people understood back in the Old Testament if their sins were going to be forgiven, every year they would have to go into Jerusalem on Passover and they would have to sacrifice a lamb in, in place of their sins. That a perfect Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Not just any old lamb. You couldn't take the dumpy lamb that really isn't going to be that good for eating. You couldn't give that one. You had to give a spotless lamb. In other words, you had to give the perfect lamb that had no blemishes and no spots on it. Now that's going to be kind of hard for a lot of people to raise that perfect lamb. A lot of people don't have the capacity. So a lot of the Israelites, they had to actually go to the market and they had to buy a perfect lamb for their family so they could bring it to Jerusalem on Passover for it to be sacrificed. And where do you think people would go to buy a perfect lamb that was spotless? They would go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known all over the ancient world as that's where you go to buy a perfect spotless lamb. So how appropriate. The Savior of the world that declares that he is the bread of life would be born in a city that means house of bread that has a reputation of raising spotless lambs for a sacrifice. How strategic that God pulled all of this together. For 700 years, the Israelites wondered, when would this baby be born? And he was born at the exact right time in the exact location that God had always planned. See, Christmas Eve is our reminder that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Christmas Eve is always our reminder that Jesus is our only means of survival. Your belief and your trust and your dependence on Jesus is your guarantee for survival. And that's why people are drawn to Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is the epicenter of the bread of life that would take away the sins of the world. But there's something else. See, we always talk about the epicenter. Where's the epicenter of the earthquake? And the epicenter, for if you're wondering what that means, it just classically means the focal point of an activity. There's something deeper than the epicenter of Bethlehem. And there's something deeper than the epicenter of an earthquake. The epicenter of an earthquake doesn't hap didn't happen in Northridge, California. It actually happened miles under into the earth. The originating part of the earthquake was hundreds or tens of miles underneath the surface of the earth. We call that the hypocenter. That's the activity that caused the earthquake deep in the earth's surfaces. See, we look at Bethlehem and we think that is the epicenter of the birth of Jesus. See, the hypocenter of the birth of Jesus is the scripture from Matthew 1, verse 23, that says, Look, the virgin will conceive a son. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. 
the hypocenter of Jesus' birth is a God that wants to be with his people. The hypocenter of the Bethlehem is God's desire for you to experience a relationship with him. That's the hypocenter of the earthquake. And that's the hypocenter of Bethlehem is God's deep desire to be with you. Christmas is our reminder that when you get Jesus, you get God. Because Jesus is a perfect picture of who God is. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. See, if you have Jesus, you have the bread of life that continues to give you life each and every day. The hypocenter of Christmas is the confidence that we know that God is with us. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says it this way, that's so powerful. For hasn't he promised you, I will never leave you, never. I will not loosen my grip on your life. So we can say with great confidence, I know the Lord is for me and I will never be afraid of what people may say to me. See, that is the good news that we walk into the year 2023 with. We walk into this new year with a confidence of Christmas knowing that God is with us. We walk into this new year with a confidence knowing that God will not loosen his grip on any of us. We walk into this new year with a confidence that God will lead us and that he will guide us and he will sustain us. See, when we think about Christmas, we think about baby Jesus. We celebrate the fact that we have God with us. But too often at Christmas, using the words of Tyler Statton, the Holy Spirit becomes a familiar stranger in this story. We focus on God, we focus on Jesus, but we forget to focus on the power of the Holy Spirit in this story. And sometimes in our Western culture of Christianity, we kind of prefer it that way. Jesus and God are a little bit more predictable. The Holy Spirit, that's just a little bit more unpredictable. So sometimes we forget to include the Holy Spirit in the Christmas story. But see, in the Christmas story, we celebrate this little baby that was born that would go to the cross. We celebrate this little baby that would go to the cross, that he would die on the cross, but that he would also be resurrected from the dead. So at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus, but we also celebrate the Holy Spirit. We celebrate the, the Holy Spirit and we acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we acknowledge that God wants us to have an experience with the Holy Spirit as we move into this year. And today, we make a commitment to more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I know some of you, it's the last couple years have been hard. 2020, 2021 have been extremely difficult. 2022, it kind of seemed to be a year of aftershocks. The earthquake seemed to be year 2020, and then 2021 and 22, we experienced a lot of aftershocks. Seems like it took the world a long time to settle in. And I think as we turn the calendar to this new year, we're going to experience a little bit more of stability. 
We're going to experience a little bit more of our identity of what God's called us to do. We're going to experience a little bit more in this new year, the seeds that God has planted over the last two years, and we thought, are they ever going to come to fruition? A lot of us waited for a long time in 2020 and 21 and 22. We waited for things to happen, and I do believe as we enter into this new year, we will see an acceleration of some of the good things that God has planned for our life happen this year. I'm encouraged for this year. I'm encouraged for you to be part of our community. As you know, even in the last year, we changed our name from Lake Effect Church to the Stello Grove, and we're still working all of that out. Part of changing a name was, well, Dave Vanderveen said to me six months ago, did you ever consider changing the name of the church? And I thought, well, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. Why would I do that? I like Lake Effect Church. I picked that six years ago. But how the Lord led us just supernaturally through the year to realize Stella Grove was a little bit better a name for us. See, when God changes the name of a person, it's not, he's not negating what was done in the past. He's establishing what you're going to do today and do it in the future, and it gives more clarity. See, we change from Lake Effect Church that has a deep and a rich meaning to the Stello Grove. Stello is a wonderful word that comes from, it's a root word for the word apostle or the word apostolic. The connotation of the word Stello means to gather people, to equip them, to prepare them, to train them, and to send them into the world. That's what we're known as. We are a stello, a center where people come to be trained, equipped, equipped, healed, delivered, set free so they can be sent into the world. In grove, that's just a good word because trees grow better in groves and people grow better in community. And that's what we're all about. And as we enter into this new year, we're excited for, the, for the, the calling that God has for us. We're excited for the calling that God has called us to be a safe church for people to share their stories. We're excited to be a church where people can come together and they can experience who Jesus really is. A church where people can make sense of their life and discover an authentic relationship with Jesus. So thank you for being part of this journey with us. This has been a difficult last two, three years, and we're excited where we are today and entering into this new year. And I'm excited for all of you entering into this new year because I know that God has a strategic plan for each of you and for each of your families. There's two scriptures that um, God has been really highlighting to me for the last uh, couple months as I've been praying about this new year. And one of the scriptures that I, I'd like, I think this is for us as a community and for you as individuals, I, I would take time to read these scriptures and meditate on them. And the first scripture is from 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9 that says, For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. This is such a powerful scripture. Another way to say it is that we are co-workers with God. The scripture reminds us of the work that God has called us to do with him. That God needs us to participate in his plans. That he wants us to participate in his plans. So often we believe the lie that, well, does it really matter? Does God really need me? If God is powerful, he could find somebody else. Yeah, he could find somebody else. But he wants you. He wants you. He wants you to participate in his plans. And I love this verse too because it says, and you are God's field. Another translation says, you are God's garden. That means God is in your life. He's working in your life. He's cultivating the soil in your life. He is trying to make things grow in your life. And after 2020, 21, 22, it's easy to think, Ugh, is anything going to grow? 
And that's where I love Isaiah 58, verse 11 and 12. I need some water. Fifty-eight, eleven and 12. This is such a good encouraging verse for all of us this year. Yahweh will always guide you where to go and what to do. He will fill you A little emotional here. He will fill you with refreshment even when you are in a dry, difficult place. He will continually restore strength to you. So you will flourish like a well-watered garden in an ever-flowing, trustworthy spring. A blessing. Your people will rebuild long-deserted ruins. Building anew on foundations laid long ago before you. You will be known. This is for you. You will be known as repairers of cities and restorers of communities. This was a prophetic word for the Israelites when they got out of captivity, and I believe this is a prophetic word for us as we walk out of the captivity of COVID. That God says, you will be a well-watered garden. What a beautiful picture. Your life is a garden that God is growing beautiful things in. There's beautiful things in your garden. All through the Bible, gardens were illustrations of beautiful places that God would grow, but where God would be with his people. And God wants to refresh all of us in this new year. And that's the excitement that we have to look forward to this year. I believe that these verses, you're going to see these happen this year. That you're going to be encouraged this year. That you're going to be strengthened this year. And as a community, we're going to, we're going to jump into these two verses. We're going to understand what they mean. But also we're going to understand the context around these verses. How does, what, what was God speaking to the Israelites when he spoke these words? And what was the Israelites' responsibility as well? There was a little responsibility on the shoulders of the Israelites what to do. But we want to have a year where we're going to focus Focus on the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. I love this quote from, you go all you want. I love this quote by the late Billy Graham. He says, everywhere I go, and this is at the end of his career, Billy Graham spent his entire life traveling the world, preaching salvation messages, and at the end of his career, he said, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is, is not at all what they expected, and they often have reoccurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was Billy Graham's advice, and I think we agree with that. We live in a date and a time where we see so many people are desperate to see something change in their life. They're desperate to see God move deeper in their life. A lot of Christians, frankly, are not satisfied with the Christian life that they're experiencing. We want to be people that are deeply satisfied by the bread of life. 
We want to be people that are deeply satisfied with our relationship with God. And as we move into this year, we are going to focus on experiencing the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, I know sometime in our Western culture, we're like, no, no, no. We're going to study the Holy Spirit this year. And maybe a little later, we might have an experience. But you know what? In the Bible... Quite often the experience comes first and the classroom comes later. And in our Western culture, we're like, no, we're not going to do it that way. We got a better way. I think we go to the book of Acts. Everybody says, let's, let's do the church of Acts again. Let's do the church. Let's be like the church of Acts. Okay, let's do it. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. What does the author say? In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. You notice the sequence. First he did it, and then he taught it. First there was an experience, and then he taught it. The most classic example of Jesus having his disciples have an experience before they understood what was going on is John chapter 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Here his disciples are all together in a room and Jesus decides to give the disciples an experience. He's going to wash all their feet. All of them are going, wait a minute, this does not make any sense. I don't know what you're doing. Peter has the guts to actually say, no, you stop. He says, stop it to Jesus. Could you ever imagine somebody saying stop it to Jesus in our churches? And there's Peter saying, stop it. Why? I don't understand what you're doing. But Jesus continues on, and then after Jesus gets done washing all the disciples' feet, and then he teaches his disciples what just happened. He taught them about being a servant. Well, friends, I think this is going to be our year of having a lot of experiences, and the classroom's going to be later. And sometimes we're like, that's a little uncomfortable. That's often how Jesus did ministry all through the book of Acts. You had an encounter with God, you had an experience with God, and it got you really super curious, and then later Jesus went on to explain it. Some of you might be discouraged. Some of you might be frustrated. Some of you online might be like, is anything ever going to change? I think I have two words for us this year. Get ready. Get ready. It's going to be a fun year. That doesn't mean every problem has to go away. That doesn't mean every challenge goes away. That doesn't mean you win the lottery. But it means that through this year, the Holy Spirit's going to do something in our life that is going to cause us to be more dependent on Jesus than we've ever been dependent before. And it's going to be good. Because when you're dependent on Jesus, you're satisfied. And you discover, I have everything I need. That's what we're going to do this year. We're going to have an encounter with God, an experience with the Holy Spirit that is going to radically change our life. It's going to bring us healing, wholeness, equipping. And then it's going to send us into the world to do what God's called us to do. You are significant. God has a plan for you. He wants you to be sharing your story with other people, and he wants to make you well. He wants to set us free, and he wants us to minister to broken people. He wants to equip us. 
And he wants to surprise us. A good friend of mine talks about there's one name. There's one name of God missing from the Bible. Some of you know. You've been around me long enough. It says there's one name of God missing from the Bible, and that's Jehovah Sneaky. Sometimes Jehovah's a little sneaky, and he's going to do things this year that none of you expected, you never imagined, you never hoped for, and you're going to look back and say, that was sneaky. And that, I think, is going to mark a lot of our lives this year. God's just going to do tremendous things because he is a good, good father. And he came to this earth because he wanted to be with us. We're just celebrating the fact of Christmas is that God said, I want to be with you. That was his call. That was his decision. We're just saying, yes, I want to be with you as well. And I want to experience the fullness of what you have for me. So, Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for bringing us here on this Christmas Eve smash with a New Year's Day service to sit back and to think, wow, you are really strategic. You caused a baby to be born in Bethlehem for bigger purposes than we could ever imagine, and you caused for us to be born today in this city, in this hour, for a strategic reason as well. So God, as we enter into this new year, Lord, we say we want to be obedient to you. We want to follow you. We want to experience all that you have for us. We want to be faithful to you. God, we ask, Lord, that you would do a deep work of healing and wholeness and transformation and renewal in our lives. God, would you change our lives and give us an appetite for, for, to just seek after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.